before Carrie uh, reads the scripture for the day, um, I just want to remind you of kind of where we've been this summer. Uh, we've been exploring the Psalms uh, through um, a few different uh, sermons, and it's been in the, the space of Psalm 104 to 107, covering each of those. And uh, we've talked about what it means to praise God, what it means to be grateful to God, what it means to tell our story in the context of God's love. And this morning we come to Psalm 106, um, which is probably the toughest psalm that we've looked at this summer. Um, Roth said to me, are you really going to preach on this <laughs> when he read it? Um, and uh, where it really talked about how Israel failed to live out their covenant with God and God's struggle with Israel. Now, I um, did not grow up in a more liturgical church. We, um, I grew up in the Baptist tradition, and, and so when uh, we began to go to a Presbyterian church early on, um, I have to say I fell in love with the liturgy. I loved the rhythm of it. I loved how it carried us. Um, I came, started attending this church in the summer, and the pastor was on sabbatical, and the music director was on sabbatical, and we were down to the the youth pastor and the college pastor, it was a larger church, and um, I just loved how the liturgy carried us week to week, whether, whether the sermon was perfect and the bulletin was, had no errors in it or not, there was the liturgy <laughs> there for us um, to take us through it, and I, I loved the prayer of confession, and in fact, um, we were living in Walnut Creek, we were driving to Berkeley uh, to get to, to church on time, and I just, it was always my goal to slip into the pew by the time the prayer of confession happened. Um, because I loved when the pastor said, friends, believe this good news, in Jesus Christ we are forgiven and free, and there was something about that that every week felt like it grounded me, and it reminded me, didn't have to be perfect, it wasn't all up to me. <clears throat> and so, um, what I learned, though, as I uh, moved on in my theological education and experience in the church is that not everyone has a positive view of confession. <laughs> and indeed, particularly those who may have grown up in a tradition, um, a Catholic tradition particularly, where there's been some abuse of the confession practice, but I think, you know, in other places as well, um, confession seems to be like you're coming in to be reminded of how bad you are and how wrong you are, and, um, and really, you know, like, let's just do away with it all together. This was quite a shock to me, who found such comfort in the practice of confession. So I'm always, um, always trying to redeem confession, <laughs> I would say, in some way, and this psalm gives us a reason to talk about that this morning. I hope that our experience can be like the story of um, a little boy named Jackie in a short story by Frank O'Connor, where he tells about this little Irish boy named Jackie whose grandmother moved in with him, and uh, the grandmother loved his older sister and didn't like Jackie so much. And the grandmother would, would punish Jackie, and Jackie would uh, lash out a little bit. Jackie was known to hide under the table with a butter knife and try to murder his sister with the, um, <laughs> with the butter knife. And then it came time to tell his first confession. And he was told that God knew if he was going to give a bad confession. And he was terrified. 
He despised his grandmother. He couldn't stand his sister. And he was sure that the priest was going to give him all sorts of penance to do. He got into the confessional booth, thrown in there by his sister, and the, the window had not yet opened, and so he couldn't figure out where the priest was. And he saw a little ledge, and so he thought maybe he needed to climb up on the ledge in order to see the priest or something. So, well, so when the priest opened the window, um, he, was, he was up on this ledge looking over into the, into the window, and the priest was so shocked that it sent Jackie flying back out of the <laughs> confession booth, and he landed on his back. Um, in front of everybody. But eventually he made it back into the confession booth and the priest opened the window and the priest started talking to him. The priest listened to his stories about his grandmother and his sister. And he didn't condescend and he didn't condemn. Instead, there was this matter-of-factness to the priest's engagement with Jackie. This deep understanding of hard life that this little guy was living. And the boy left with only three Hail Marys to say. And his sister said, you must have had a bad confession. And he said, no, I told him everything. <laughs> and she was shocked. And Jackie from then on was eager to go and make his confession because he knew it was a place where he could just be the little boy that he was, struggling with his sister, struggling with his grandmother, struggling with his friends, and find in that space understanding and love and acceptance. And so I think this is part of my hope of how we're going to redeem confession this morning. And um, I've asked Carrie to just wait a moment so I can uh, couch this scripture reading for you <laughs> to uh, consider the relationship of God and Israel, to consider the recounting of, of is what Israel does and what God does, and consider it in this light where we are all in this covenant responsibility together, living life with God, trying to sort it out, and we along with the nation of Israel. Thank you. Today's reading is from Psalm 106, verses 7 to 27. Our ancestors, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wonderful works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love but rebelled against the Most High at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, so that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. He led them through a deep, as through an ocean, as through a desert. And so he saved them from the hand of the foe, and delivered them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their adversaries, and not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise, but they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they wanted and what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. They were jealous of Moses in the camp and of Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord. The earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the faction of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. 
They made a calf at Horeb and worshipped a cast image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their saviour, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them? Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They grumbled in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to, him, swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would disperse their descendants among the nations, scattering them over the lands. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Now, aren't you glad your history with God isn't included in the scriptural canon? <laughs> and remembering that this is really um, someone's perspective of how God was interacting with Israel, not necessarily how God, God's self was interacting with Israel. But uh, Walter Brueggemann also says these verses are more surely more than we can take, so we never sing them. <laughs> But they do bring up this question of what is sin, that word. What is sin? Rugamon says sin is the failure to live in covenantal responsiveness. Rugamon says it's the failure to live in covenantal responsiveness. You know how um, in some of your closest relationships, when you know when you're not living in responsiveness, <laughs> When you're maybe angry with someone or frustrated or you have your walls up and, and, and there's not that sense of give and take, of, of listening and learning, of patience and compassion, that's, that's not what you promised on your wedding day. That's not what you imagined when you first looked at your baby when they were born. That's not what you, you thought would happen when you you became friends with your best friend. Covenantal responsiveness is this, is this vulnerability, this tenderness between ourselves and another, between ourselves and God. This sense where we are listening to each other and responding. And, and Brueggemann says sin is a failure to do that. Sin is when our walls are up. Sin is when... Our defenses are up. And so this story that unfolds in Psalm 106 is a story of Israel's forgetfulness, of their short-sightedness, and of God's frustration with them, which I find great comfort in. If you've been in any sort of intimate relationship, you're aware of this pattern because we play all of these roles all of the time in our relationships. We're short-sighted. We forget to consider the other. We get frustrated with other people, with our close 
friends and family. And so confession, when we come to confession, it's a moment to let those guards down one more time. It's less an act that we make and more a state of our soul that is without defenses, a soul where the tension and pain of life can be held without grasping, without hiding, without being afraid of telling the truth. And we need that act of confession, that place, whether it be in our service or in our private prayer, to bring us back to that. But it's not about the act. It's about how we're living in covenantal responsiveness. Confession is about opening ourselves up to the possibility that we may be wrong. It's about acknowledging that we haven't done everything right, maybe best intentions, but hasn't been all right. It's about renewing our humility. It's about re-entering that flow of relational responsiveness. What happens when we don't talk about it, when we don't live in that space of confession? Well, I think we often hurt others. We damage the flow of relational responsiveness. We block our ability to move forward. On a relational level, relationships can really only go so far without talking about how we've hurt each other, without maybe getting through some road bumps around what, how we're misunderstanding each other. We're, our relationships can't go get as intimate and as deep and be as healing and whole as we want them to be without having that space to talk with each other about, about what may be a struggle. If we're not able to, to have those conversations, then we don't know the joy of forgiveness and the possibility of reconciliation with those we love. On a spiritual level, when we, we aren't able to get to a point of confession, we're blocked from our intimacy with God. We're blocked from the joy of knowing that we are loved just as we are. James Finley writes this. He says, in our zeal to become the landlords of our own being, we cling to each achievement as a kind of verification of our self-proclaimed reality. We become the center, and God somehow recedes to an invisible fringe. Others become real to the extent that they become significant others to the designs of our own ego. And in this process, the all of God dies in us and the sterile nothingness of our desires becomes our God. Confession is a way to once again remind ourselves that our reality is not our ego's strength. Our reality is that we are so deeply loved by God. And so we can let go of those things that we're holding so tightly. On a corporate level, and we don't talk about this a lot, but on a corporate level, confession is also important. There's a beautiful book uh, written several years ago called Honest Patriots about different countries' um, programs to have corporate and national confession. It talked about the monuments that were built in Germany to, to confess to the Holocaust about the way that South Africa has participated in confessing for apartheid, 
and considers how this might be an important part of our fabric of our societies to participate in corporate confession. Most recently, I think we've, uh, many of us have become aware that there's a corporate confession needed around racism in our country. And I've been reading a really wonderful book called uh, White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. And she says, I believe that white progressives cause the most daily damage to people of color because to the degree that we think we have arrived, we will put our energy into making sure that others see us as having arrived. None of our energy will go into what we need to be doing for the rest of our lives, which is engaging in ongoing self-awareness, continuing education, relationship building, and actual anti-racist practice. Our defensiveness and certitude make it virtually impossible to explain to us how we do so. Really powerful book if you're looking to be challenged on some of these issues, but, um, but it's interesting, right? When, we, when we're so, as a nation or as a, as a corporate community, so defensive about who we are and how we have everything figured out and how we are, um, you know, don't need to change, um, then that causes us to build up walls and doesn't allow us to change and to do the communal and corporate and national and societal work to break through some of these things that we have done wrong and that we continue to perpetuate, even if we're not aware of it. So why don't we do it if it seems to work so well relationally and communally and individually and spiritually? Why do we just sweep confession and, and what's going, really going on under the rug of our politeness and protecting our image? Well, first of all, I think we're afraid to, to lose credibility. If, if we're wrong or we've maybe less than perfect, someone else, um, then, then we, we, we feel like we can't, um, then if we're, okay, I'm getting lost in this, sorry. If we're wrong, then we actually can't even be in relationship with somebody. You know, I have that feeling of, sometimes I have this a lot, where I feel like if I'm not perfect, then I really don't have a leg to stand on to be in relationship with you or to have that conversation. We're playing this zero-sum game where in order to actually be engaged with another, we have to be perfect. To do what we're called to do, we have to be perfect. Another reason we don't talk about it is that we are living in a binary world. This is another version of that that it's either either or, either perfect or not perfect. And um, instead of seeing that so much of life is about paradox and tension and journey, we think it's perfection or imperfection, control or lack of control. And so we don't wanna, we don't wanna get to the other side of that. We wanna, we wanna be on the right side of things. As Richard Rohr says, we want a religion in which we can win um, and so in order to win, maybe that's what I'm trying to say here, in order to win, we, don't, we can't confess because we want to win. Other reasons, I, I think we're just afraid to not be perfect. We're afraid to not meet our expectations of ourselves or others' expectations of us. We're afraid of experiencing shame 
We're afraid of being defined by our failures or our forgetfulness or our own struggles. We're afraid of following, falling into a regressive spirituality that tells us how bad we are. And yet 1 John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if we must, I think, take the risk of confession, of telling the whole story. Because if we don't, we don't give ourselves the capacity to grow. We don't allow the flow of forgiveness between us and God and us and others. We get stuck in denial. We aren't able to offer grace to others. And that's where this text helps us. Verses 43 through 45 say this. God delivered Israel numerous times, but they were determined to rebel. And so they were brought down by their own sin. But God saw their distress and he heard their loud cries. God remembered his covenant for their sake. And because of how much faithful love God has, God changed God's mind. The truth of our tradition, Brighamon says, is not about our failure. The truth of our common life is that the nevertheless of God may override our self-destructiveness. God repented. Even God repents of the frustration and forgetfulness of the struggle to love unconditionally. And so we are invited to repent as well. The path of authentic spirituality is truth-telling without shame, anger and sadness and grief without isolation, unconditional love without perfection, compassion without blindness, Forgiveness without naivete. God meets us in our confession. This is what we are longing for. James Finley also says, All our initial enthusiastic notions of prayer deteriorate into an acknowledgement of our utter superficiality and lack of authenticity before God. We can only throw ourselves completely on God's mercy. We can only wait in the darkness and cry out to be saved. We can but trust that God's love is such that our sinfulness does not even matter. We can only have faith. This is what we want. This is what we long for. This is the space in which we can grow and flourish. And this requires our honest confession to open the gates of all of it. This is what unbinds us. Only truth-telling positions us for receiving the mercy and goodness of God. Maria is going to sing a song um, in the next few moments, a song that's a favorite of mine. So as we um, go into that, I invite you to just uh, close your eyes and to take in these lyrics. I'm going to read them to you, and then she'll sing. It came to me in a time when I was struggling to forgive in a relationship, when I was stuck in an either-or, zero-sum game. So much hurt and preservation, like a tendril round my soul. So much painful information, no clear way on how to hold it. When everything in me is tightening, curling in around this ache, 
I will lay my heart wide open like the surface of a lake. Standing at this water's edge, looking in at God's own heart, I've no idea where to begin to swallow up the way things are. Everything in me is drawing in, closing in around this pain. I will lay my heart wide open, like the surface of a lake. Wide open, like a lake. Bring the wind and bring the thunder, bring the rain till I am tried. When it's over, bring me stillness. Let my face reflect the sky and all the grace and all the wonder of a peace that I can't fake. Wide open like a lake. Friends, believe this good news. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Amen.